Hi there, and welcome back to another edition of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. And I'm the executive producer of the show, Colin Morgan. Now, if you've ever wanted to create recurring revenue inside your business, we have a special treat for you today. Today's show is the third in our three-part expert series and features a conversation between John Warlow, the author of The Automatic Customer, creating a subscription business in any industry, and Robbie Kilman-Baxter, the author of The Membership Economy and The Forever Transaction, two of the world's leading experts on subscription models in one episode. Now, I know you know John's bio, so let me give you more background on Robbie. Robbie helps companies leverage subscription pricing, digital communities, and freemium models to build deeper relationships with customers. She has worked with over 100 organizations in over 20 industries like the MBA, Hegarty, the Wall Street Journal, Microsoft, and Ingram Micro. As a keynote speaker, Robbie presented globally at major conferences, association meetings, trade shows, and elite universities, as well as to private audiences at many of the world's most well-known companies. She hosts the podcast Subscription Stories, where she sits down with business leaders to discuss how they're using subscription pricing and membership models to redefine the biggest industries and generate predictable recurring revenue. Her first book, The Membership Economy, Find Your Super Users, Master the Forever Transaction, and Build Recurring Revenue, anticipated and defined the massive transformation from ownership to membership and the rise of subscription pricing. It was named a top 10 marketing book of all time by Book Authority. Her second book, The Forever Transaction, takes readers through every step of the subscription business process, from the initial startup or testing of a new model to scaling up the operation for long-term growth and sustainability. Prior to launching Peninsula Strategies, Robbie was the strategy consultant at Booz Allen & Hamilton, a New York City urban fellow and Silicon Valley product marketer. She received an MBA from Stanford Graduate School of Business and graduated with honors from Harvard College. Now sit back, grab a coffee, and enjoy today's conversation between John Warlow and Robbie Kelman-Baxter. Enjoy. Robbie Kelman-Baxter, welcome to Cell Radio. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to chat with you. I am really thrilled to talk to you. I was on stage at a conference talking to a group of entrepreneurs literally two weeks ago, we were talking about recurring revenue and subscription models. And I was like blathering on about how important it is to the value of your company. And I'm like, all right, go for it. Everybody in the audience, raise your hand if you're in an industry that you don't think you can create recurring revenue in. And, <laughs> and, and we'll riff together. And I'm like in front of 200 people and feeling all proud of myself. And some guy in the back of the room says, yeah, okay, well, I own a hotel uh, franchise. And I'm like, all of a sudden, completely freeze <laughs> on stage. And I can't think of any subscription model. So I'm hoping today we can crack open this idea that the subscription model is only applicable to SaaS companies, software as a service companies. I want to. I want our listeners. They run dental practices and car dealerships and architectural firms and you know lawn care firms. And I really want to open their minds to the idea that even they can create recurring revenue. So, like riff with me. Let's start off talking about some industries, some some companies that are doing recurring revenue. 
in industries that you wouldn't ordinarily think of them. Yeah. Well, I want to start with your that that initial assumption about SaaS software as a service because yeah, go, when, go, when go I started when I started talking about membership and subscriptions and the value of recurring revenue and what I call a forever transaction, which is you know when your customers choose you first and kind of stop thinking like a customer, start thinking like a member. Um, you know, I'd been a product manager in software companies and they thought this was a terrible idea. They said, it doesn't work for us. You don't understand in B2B software, it's way too complicated. Um, and the only company that was really doing it in a credible way at that time, this is like, you know, 25 years ago, uh, was Salesforce, right? right? And it was, so it was, you know, they were saying the same thing. I think that some of, some of your audience members are saying like, it doesn't work in software. It works with newspapers. It works with gyms, but it doesn't work for me. And, it's really been my life's work to, to try to, you know, show organizations that almost any business that wants to have a long-term relationship with their customers and that has value that justifies an ongoing relationship with their customers can be a subscription business. But here, here's, here's the steps that I would take, right? And cause that used to be okay. the same thing as you. Like I, I'm writing the book. I'm trying to think what are the cases where it doesn't work? And what I came to is if you're never going to see the customer again, or if the customer doesn't have a choice, then you don't really need subscriptions. So never going to see them again. You know, you have, you only sell, you know, caskets or you only sell wedding dress. I used to joke, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to have a subscription to a wedding dress company, right? You only want to do it once. Right. But, yeah. but what I, and then the other thing is if you have a patent, right? If I have the medicine that keeps you alive, it doesn't matter if I'm a jerk. It doesn't matter if I build a relationship. It doesn't matter how I charge you. You're going to, you're going to keep paying. Um, last gas for a hundred miles, you know, they don't have to have clean bathrooms, right? You're going to, you're going to, you're going to buy your gas there. You're not going to come back. But for anybody that's listening that has relationships with customers, there is room for subscription. And, and the way to do it is to take a step back, um, and say, what is the outcome, the ongoing outcome, the ongoing problem that I'm solving for this customer or the ongoing goal I'm helping them achieve, whether that's, I want to be healthy. I want to have a beautiful lawn. I want my, I want my yard to look great. I want to enjoy my home. Uh, I want to be healthy. Um, you know, any of these kinds of ongoing goals. And then you say, what would it look like if I did everything I could to maximize the likelihood of solving that problem on an ongoing basis? And that's where you start to get the ideas of, Oh, that's what my subscription is. It's taking the problem away from the customer on an ongoing, on an basis. ongoing it, basis. It sounds like. You need a problem that, by its definition, recurs. Right. It has to and, have something perennially problematic about it. Yeah. Yeah. And so, in some cases, you have to change what the problem is you're solving. So, for example, in the in the silly wedding dress question or you know issue, right? If you have a wedding dress shop, you might say the problem of not having a wedding dress for a wedding dress occasion probably doesn't come up too often for most of us, hopefully. Um, but the problem of always looking great for a special occasion that comes up pretty often right especially you know when you think special occasion is a work meeting you know high stakes work meeting a, a fun party uh you know a religious event whatever then you get into the rent the runway model right where it's like there's always a special occasion um so it's changing what is what is the real problem is it i need a wedding dress or is it there are these high stakes events where i need to look good is it i need to remodel my house or is it i always want my house to look it's best current. I don't see things. I don't, I'm not, you know, visually, you know, aesthetically strong. Um, and then you start to say, oh, 
that's the problem. It's make my house always look nice. I, I'm working a lot with healthcare right now. Um, you know, most of healthcare is designed to fix you when you're broken, right? Fix the broken problem. And, yeah. But most of us don't want that. We're like, I don't want to break in the first place. I want to maximize my happy, healthy minutes. And you can see how if your hospital, if your doctor was focused on you never coming in, you might be willing to spend a lot to just be healthy all the time. So give me an example from healthcare that like I'm, I'm thinking of, uh, you know, like I, I go to a chiro. I'll give you I'll give you a, a few mm-hmm. places that I go to regularly. I go to a chiropractor. I go to a dentist. I go to an optometrist. Like there's a few kind of practitioners I see on a semi-regular basis. Like, how would they create recurring revenue models? Well, so first of all, you know, in, in some cases, they almost have that in a de facto way, right? They have a relationship. They tell you to come every six months, in my case, because the back, the Kelmans are big plaque producers, apparently. So we come every, <laughs> we, we come every four months. We have like, like we have a frequent customer. I have a special door that I go in at my dentist because I'm a VIP patient. Um, but, you know, you, you recognize people like that. You, you offer them and you offer them, you know, do you want the full solution? If you know that most people end up buying a certain package over time, buying certain feature, you know, products over time, you bundle them early on and you say, this is probably going to solve the problem most fully. Um, so you go to the chiropractor because something happened, right? We don't usually go to the chiropractor in a preventative way. We go um, to, to fix something that's broken, right? So they say, look, if you don't want this to happen again, here's three things you can do, right? You can take a stretching class. You can come see me for a regular adjustments and, I don't know. You can take these these vitamins or, you know, eat this way. And then they start to put that together for you and say, my goal is to optimize for your health. And so I'm putting together the services in a way that makes sense for you. Um, there's there's an interesting. So in the chiropractic example, y- you might offer something that says like for I'm going to make mm-hmm. this up for for one hundred dollars a month. Yeah. Um, you can come in as regularly as you want to. Like you could do that. You could say you can come in as regularly as you want to. You could say, uh, you know, we have, I'm making this up. I don't see chiropractors. This might not be the best example, but you can, um, you know, on Thursdays, we have other people that have health issues and they, they get together and talk to each other. We have a community because a lot of times if you have an ongoing problem or an ongoing goal, it's just as helpful to meet other people dealing with the same problem because they might have other tips for you. Um, that the one specialist doesn't have, right? So you might go to take your toddler for their checkup, but while you're in the waiting room with other parents and caregivers, you might have a really interesting discussion about where to get a good stroller, which your doctor probably doesn't know. Um, And so it's really kind of aligning around what is the ongoing problem and then how can I layer in value? And you can layer in value through, you know, the product itself, um, through discounts on, you know, the service, um, through additional services, through some kind of, you know, maintenance type of relationship, because often people come in for the big, the big event, the big transaction, mm-hmm. but there's actually kind of ongoing maintenance. Um, one company I worked with, Haggerty uh, Insurance, uh, which is insurance for classic cars, they've built a whole business around what do you do once you have the car, right? You enjoy it, right? Where do you go? You go to car shows, you figure out car vacations, you hang out with other car fans and talk about your cars, you maintain cars, you go on a hunt for a really old piece, you know, that you need to, I don't know, you can see this is not also my area of expertise, but you know, the the piece you need to fix the car to make it the way it once was. um, They offer all of those features in their driver's club, right? In addition to the, you know, you have the insurance, 
but they want, it's the club. They said, you know, people don't buy a car. They don't buy insurance to buy insurance. They buy insurance because they want to have a really good time with their car, with their classic car. Um, and so what else can we do for them? What is getting in their way? Um, yeah. and, and why would it be, okay, so, so if you've got a skeptical person mm -hmm. hearing this and they're saying, okay, why on earth is this insurance company creating a driver's club? It's got to be a pittance of revenue relative to their premiums they get on insuring these fancy cars. Like, why would I bother? It's, why, mm -hmm. would, why would I just stick with my knitting and, and focus on selling premiums? Well, so first of all, this company noticed that people were already, their customers were already referring to themselves as being members. They were already coming to the Haggerty experts, calling the Haggerty hotline and saying, hey, um, I heard there was this, you know, car show. Should I go? Am I, would I look stupid? Am I the kind of person that should go? Um, and asking for advice that really went well beyond what an insurance company would provide. And their excitement when they saw the Haggerty brand went well beyond, you know, what most of us feel when we see our, you know, Geico or, you know, Liberty Mutual or whatever our, our, sure. our, our provider is. And they said, there is something more here. Um, and in it, it, what it's, what it does for them is there is a revenue. There's revenue, right? They, it costs something to be a, a, a member. Um, one of the benefits is it brings them back more often because you don't really think about insurance until you have a problem. So people think of it as a commodity and then they become very price sensitive. So this is a way to build a real relationship, um, to demonstrate your trustworthiness. Um, in, in other ways, if you have kind of uh, a product that doesn't get used very often, except in, a, in an emergency, um, it's opened the door to acquisition. So, you know, this particular company has ended up acquiring um, car shows and car events. And uh, I think they even have like a car, like a rental business where you can rent a classic car when you're on vacation. Huh. Um, and so it's given them a new lens to look at expansion. I think so many businesses are so laser focused on the product or service that they do that they forget to look at it. Like, how does that fit in the customer's journey of what they're trying to accomplish? So I might be, you know, a lawn expert. And that's great if you have really, really deep problems with your lawn. But most people just want their yard to look nice. Right. Mm -hmm. And so if you say, well, you want your yard, yard to look nice. What if they solved the whole problem? What if they said, I'm going to swing by once a week and I'm going to just make things look nice and up to a certain, you know, up to a certain amount, all of these things are included. So you don't get nickel and dimed. And above that, I'll, I'll let you know what I recommend. But I see my job as maximizing the beauty and the usability of your yard. Right. As opposed to just being another lawn care, another person. lawn care person, because I don't really want a lawn care person. When I go in to buy a white blouse for a speech that I'm giving, right, I don't like I'm not a huge shopper. I don't like to shop. It's not fun for me. I'm there because I want to look professional for my work, which is important to me. And if they knew that, they'd stop trying to say, these are all the latest things. Do you want to see them? And they'd start saying, you have a speech. Do you have makeup that is, you know, that works with, you know, strong lighting? Um, do you want to get your, you know, I can tell you where to get your hair done that will, you know, in this you know town where you're speaking and you ran out to get a shirt because you stained your other one. Um, it's, it's the mindset. It starts with the mindset. And then once you start talking to people about what their real problems are, all of these other opportunities for value come up. And those are the things that you can bundle. Um, but you can always start with advice. Almost always. You can almost always start with advice, maintenance, uh, a higher level of service and community. Those are, those are often easy ways. And then the, the other one that people start with all the time, but I recommend you don't stick with it is 
discount for volume, discount for commitment, right? If you pay as you go, it's $100 a week. If you buy it for the whole year, it's $4,500, right? You can do the math. Right. So it's it, that's kind of bribing them to stay, but your your sweet spot or your recommendation yeah. is go beyond just kind of bribing people yeah, and, and it, actually think of it as an ongoing relationship. Yeah, because the discount, like I think about acquisition um, benefits and then I think about retention benefits. Um, mm -hmm. Lower price can be a great acquisition benefit, but it doesn't change you from a commodity into a trusted relationship. So right away, you've got to offer something more. And a lot of people will say things, for example, about their, you know, their lawn people or about their, you know, uh, contractors, you know, I hired them because the price was right. Um, but I, I keep them on. I don't even care what they charge me anymore because I trust them because they've helped me out because they've shown me things I didn't see because they've helped me see around corners because they've connected me with vendors that are even outside of their area. So I know they have my best interest at heart. You know, you, you raise Haggerty and they're involved mm -hmm. in the classic car business, which is kind of a sexy business. Uh, I know the, there's another famous example of the Harley Owners yep. Club, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, you know, with Harley Davidson owners and they, they get special access to Harley stuff and Harley rides. And so there's this sort of sort of uh, cool brand where you want to have an affinity with a cool brand. And so a membership to a cool brand or having an affinity with an ongoing relationship with a cool brand kind of makes a whole bunch of sense. I, and I kind of get that. Where, however, I get some more pushback is in industries that are not sexy. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, I, I supply a widget to a company that supplies a bigger widget that sells to a giant manufacturing company. Like, how am I supposed to buy into this idea yeah. of recurring revenue when I don't have some sexy brand people want to have affinity to? Yeah. You know, one man's boring is another man's sexy, right? I mean, it's like, you know, you said it here first. <laughs> you know, and, and so if you're, if, if your career is based on the quality of the widgets you buy and how well they work with the products you make and how help happy that makes the clients that you serve, uh, you're going to care a lot about the relationship you have with your widget provider. So I think one of the things that that these um, owners might not be thinking about is who is their customer and what is that customer's goal? And in the B2B world, there's a piece of that, which is about I, as a person that works in this company, have goals. So for example, Salesforce, which you know, we kind of opened with, one of the things they did very early on is they created a community for Salesforce administrators, right? Super boring, right? A bunch of people who like manage, you and I. right? Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it, it seems, but if that's your job, what do you, what do you want? You want to um, get the next new good job. You want to get a good review. You want to get out the door at five o'clock, um, you don't want to be, you know, caught off guard by something that your boss asks you for. You want to be impressive at meetings. Those are very sexy ideas to somebody who is using that software every day. And so when you start to think about what can I do for that person to help them achieve their ongoing goals, which is about being well-regarded, getting a good review, being promoted, having free time, being efficient suddenly that widget maker can start to think of all the other things they can do to help that person. Really well said. I love the Salesforce example because you're right. There's nothing inherently interesting necessarily about, you know, like no, no CRM. One, no one has but, a but Salesforce tattoo, right? <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> that I know uh, of. I think, ben, I think Benioff probably has a <laughs> somewhere. But, but, but I think you're right. I think there's a, this idea that among the people whose job it is to be the very best, in this case, Salesforce administrator, they do have an affinity for that relationship. They need to look smart and so forth. It's it, it's interesting. One of the things I find with, with recurring revenue models and subscription models is is that people get mixed up between reoccurring revenue and recurring mm. revenue. And to some people, they just said, well, you just said the same thing. They're identical. Reoccurring revenue is like a rash. You don't know when you're going to have yes. that rash reoccur, but <laughs> it, it does come back from time to time. Yeah. Whereas recurring revenue is on a predictable cadence. Do you find customers getting confused by these two things? And, and how do you coach them through that confusion? Yeah. I mean, I I think one of them is that, you know, every time, if every time someone walks out the door, this could be their last time, the incentive is to upsell them and to not worry about the integrity of the relationship. And so it really does affect the culture of the organization. If your business is optimized around recurring revenue, uh, everybody in the organization is optimizing around you know, solving the ongoing problem, knowing that there's going to be a next time, knowing that they have your home phone number, it really changes the vibe of the place. Um, and I think a lot of a lot of um, entrepreneurs and executives don't think about this. In their mind, they're like, okay, we used to sell, you know, let's we're talking about lawn care, right? Lawn care once a week, or we used to sell hotel rooms, but now we're going to bundle it and you get, you know, two nights of hotel a month. Right. Let's just even say that that's relevant or anybody would want that. But, you know, you come with this package, but you don't change your behavior. Right. And they come in and it's still $70 for, you know, I just was staying at a hotel where it was 70 bucks for the, the valet that was required because there was no self park. But what, what they do well or what they're moving toward is an experience for frequent members, right? Where you're not nickeled and dimed, where they anticipate what's going to make your experience better. Um, and even thinking about things like recognizing you when you show up and not maximizing the revenue from that single visit, but rather, you know, really building for the, that long-term relationship. And, and I think by doing that, um, you know, things as simple as compensating people on, on you know, recurring visits or, you know, loyalty, um, it, it changes how everybody from the, you know, the front desk to the, you know, the valets to everybody else. It, it sounds like you're advocating this really is much more than a pricing strategy. This, this kind of goes through the entire organization, right through the way you train your employees, how to deal with customers. Cause you know, the old school transactional business model was yeah. Like upsell, 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 get, yeah. get the premium. They bought the widget, make sure they bought the, you know, they buy the, yeah. whatever the insurance with the widget to, to ensure that you maximize their, you know, cost per or revenue per visitor or, you know, that kind of idea. And what I hear you advocating is as a much longer term view. I'll tell you, I, I had a really interesting experience, at least interesting for me. I got a chance <laughs> to speak years ago now at the, I can't remember the name of the association. It was called like the American Car Wash Association. Oh, I spoke uh, there. The, so, yeah. Did you really? International okay. Car Wash. I see. Uh, yes. I, Okay, so we both we both done the same gig. Giant, I wonder if giant, um, yeah, they had like a giant car wash set up in the middle of the trade room. Trade, yeah, trade show yeah, floor yeah. with all the yeah. soap and yeah, that's hilarious. yeah. both. In any event, 
I go to this car and they say, you know what, we want you to talk about subscription model and how it applies to car wash. And so I was sort of getting everybody revved up about this idea of, you know, like you could turn your car wash uh, from a transaction business into a subscription one by offering unlimited car washes. And and you wouldn't believe the resistance I got yes. in the room, right? Because they're like, no, no, but you don't understand. If, if we had unlimited, like everybody would come through every day. And like we would go broke in all the hot water. And we couldn't do it. What would you say to someone who is hesitant to do this because they, they're seeing this all you can eat business model as one that is unpredictable and that they they couldn't possibly do because they'd be worried people would kind of use the service all the time. Yeah. What's your rebuttal to someone like yeah. that? Yeah. So I had the same, you know, experience with the car wash folks. And the other thing that they said, and this is like five years ago now, but the other thing that they said, they were so focused on shaving off one minute on the car wash time, right? Like, mm. so instead of it taking 11 minutes, it only takes 10 and a half minutes and it's, 8% cleaner. And I said to them, I'm like, nobody cares except you. What people, in fact, what people really want is to not even have to show up at all and just have their car be clean, like have the car fairies come in the middle of the night and clean it. Um, and that was really, I think, surprising to them. Um, but what, what we learned, so a couple of things that they learned, you know, cause now almost every car wash, they've, they've changed their tune. Like all the car washes are now offering subscriptions. And there's a couple of things they've learned. One of them is, most people that have a car wash subscription go twice a month, twice a month. So it's not crazy. The people who are crazy are, you know, the few crazy folks out there in the world who love having a spotless car, but also uh, Uber drivers, uh, Lyft drivers um, who are required to have a clean car. Um, and so they've started to change the rules around those people and create different offerings for them. So they've kind of segmented them out. Um, they also learned that there was a whole segment of people who um, subscribed not who only went once a month. So basically they're, you know, they're losing money on this. But what those people said is I like having the card that I can swipe and I don't have to go to the cashier anymore because they wanted a completely friction free experience and they didn't even care how much it costs. So for every person that's going four or five times a month, there's a person who's paying for a subscription and only going once a month. Um, hmm. but, but what I would say to these people, if you really are saying, um, you know, I'd love to try subscription, but I'm afraid that an all you can eat, I, I can't walk back an all you can eat model. You, you want to test it. Um, you want to really get clear on what your big, I always have my clients do this, figure out what are the biggest things that can go wrong and then figure out what are the ways we can mitigate those risks. So for example, if you think people are going to overuse it, right, you can either design it into your program right from the beginning, um, you know, no no Uber drivers allowed. That's probably not allowed, but you know, something that is designed or, you know, you can only come during these periods or there's a maximum number, lots of, and you see a lot of new subscription offers have this fine print, you know, you can't do that many, or you can't come during busiest hours. And then once you learn what the actual cadence is, how people actually use it, then you can be a lot bolder. So for example, um, the company Whoop, which has a, a wearable uh, device oh, yeah. for you I've, to, them. I've never used them. Yeah. Whoop. Yeah. yeah. To track yeah, your health, we'll right. And your recovery, yeah. they're big on your recovery time. So for elite athletes, so I obviously, I obviously don't have one, but, um, <laughs> but my yeah, sister, does. you know, <laughs> our elite athletes, we just determined that is the, the kind of core idea. Of the yeah. yeah. So, so a lot of these biohackers have them and they are so confident. They have such a clear understanding of how long someone's going to use this device, which is, you know, the answer is, you know, a long time that they actually give away the watch with the subscription, with a six-month commitment. 
So your first six months, you get a watch. And then from there on out, every time they upgrade the watch, you get the upgrade too. Uh, I believe that's still the case. But they, they had a lot of faith that offering the best experience to maximize the likelihood of somebody bouncing back in the best way from a big workout, that if they keep doing that, people will keep coming back. Um, and so they aren't worried about losing people. You know, in their case, they were worried, you know, people are often worried, you know, if I like Peloton, if I if I give the hardware with the software, what if they never come back? What if I never get the money back? Um, and so some of them do it like Peloton does, which is you pay a big amount for the hardware and then you also pay for the software. Some like Whoop that understand their model better, they just package the whole thing together. So you can do it in stages. That's really cool. So the kind of best practice is do a test, observe the behavior. Yeah. And then start to remove some of the restrictions because the restrictions act like speed bumps, presumably. Yeah. Oh, there's all this mouth type, the terms and conditions. Oh, I'll never use it. And they then they bolt. But if right. you remove some of that stuff based on yeah. behavior, i.e., two car washes a month, like yeah. it, or, it reduces. Or you concern. try it in a very small market. So if you have a chain of car washes, you might say, We're offering, you know, this summer, we're offering unlimited car washes for three months. And you see mm -hmm. what people do and, and you have an out. Right. At the end of the three months, you can decide you're never going to do it again or you can double the price or whatever. Yeah, I love your your concept or your insight in the car wash folks saying that there's a segment of the market that, you know, they, they care about the frictionless purchase. I had a chance to interview Sonyu Panda for the automatic customer about uh, H. Bloom, the subscription based flower company. Oh, yeah. And one of the things he really described to me was the importance of segmentation. So he was like. You know, the biggest mistake people make in creating recurring revenue models is they try to create some vanilla program for all their customers. And, and what he did when he looked at the people who buy flowers, he realized there were lots of people who buy flowers kind of transactionally, like weddings, funerals, you know, bar mitzvahs, whatever. But then there are these five-star hotel chains that want to have the bouquet of flowers on the reception table. And those are the folks who buy them on a recurring basis. That's who we're going to design the subscription model for. So it was this like segmentation is kind of almost like a, a, a prerequisite or a yeah. first step in the process. Have you seen some similar work in your in your work with clients that segmentation is kind of the, the yeah. first you, step? You have to know who you're designing the subscription for. Um, and there's there's a couple of ways that I think organizations will often do it. It's often sometimes the subscription is for your best customers, right? Mm -hmm. So in this case, the case with the with the flowers, it's you know, it's the best customers, the ones who buy big bouquets, I imagine, every week. Um, and yeah. they also have, I mean, and I'm guessing they also have very different, like some different needs. They probably want delivery. They might have custom requests. They might want to reuse their own vases, you know, stuff like that. You optimize around them, right? And you really get into their head about what their problems are. And if that works, then you might offer a second subscription for a different group, right? Um, but but you're right. They They start with, and they almost, a lot of organizations will say, let's take all the features we can offer and then we'll have gold, silver, bronze, and we'll kind of randomly, you know, put the least in bronze and then add some features for each level. And you're like, well, who's a gold person and how are they different than a bronze person? And the answer that you're looking for is a gold person is a hotel and a silver person. It's not a person at all. It's a, it's a, it's a hotel. A silver person is, um, you know, somebody who does flowers for every holiday occasion and they always do it for Christmas and Mother's Day and New Year's and you know, family member birthdays. And sure. so that's what they, their subscription looks like that. Um, 
And then you can keep, you know, you can keep layering it in. It's, it's sometimes also used for your lightest members as a way to bring them in. So, um, Porsche, the, the car company, they have a subscription called, um, it used to be called Porsche Passport. And I think they call it Porsche Drive. Um, and it's, it's kind of access to a fleet of cars and you can rotate through. So you can have, you know, an SUV one month and you can have a, you know, a sports car coupe the next month. And, um, it's turned out that that is really popular with people who've never owned a Porsche before. And it's an entry point. It's an on-ramp. It's like, it's a big, it's a big expense. I want to make sure I'm really a Porsche person. Um, Right. But it's, you know, it's sort of interesting. You compare that Volvo also has a subscription. Their subscription is designed for their core um, leasing customer for their most popular model. I think it's a C, C model, C series. Um, and it basically bundles all the things that a lease has, but in a simpler way. So it's, you know, it covers maintenance and it covers replacements while your car is in the shop and it covers all of the, um, you know, all the licensing and all the other details. And, you know, you always have, a because basically those are, that's where people are like, I always want a car. I always want it to be a Volvo. I always want it to work and be in the best shape and I don't want it to be old. Right. So it's a different, those are two vastly different subscription ideas from you know, two companies that you'd think would do the same thing, right? They're both, they're both kind of high-end car companies. A hundred percent. NetJets has their um, 24 hour card, which is like that on-ramp you're describing, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, you never flown privately before. Well, here's an on-ramp to get you there. And they hook you in. And once you fly private, presumably you're never yeah. going back. So it's yeah. similar to the, the kind of Porsche idea. BMW, uh, kind of stepped in it a little bit when they started selling the heated seat subscription. <laughs> and and I, I know you've written about this and, and, and done some work around this. So um, for folks who don't know the BMW story, maybe you can, you know, share what they did in offering their heated seat subscription or was it heating steering wheel? I can't remember. No, I, said, I think it was, it was heated seats. seats. And then I think it was some kind of fancy fog light. Um, yeah. Like, and where did they get this wrong? So I think, so first of all, lots of smart people at at BMW, lots of research done. I I think the mistake was they, their subscription was with a feature that people are used to getting included. And so people had a reaction to being asked to keep paying for a prod, a feature that they expect to be in the car From, from BMW's perspective. Like they do have, you know, the same way that the new Coke debacle was made by some really smart people who had some very good arguments for why they did it that way. Um, you know, I think BMW said, you know, we see a lot of aftermarket um, resale, right? So you buy a BMW, I buy a BMW. I live in California. I don't need heated seats. Um, I sell my car to you. You live in Toronto. You would like heated seats, right? I would like the heated seats. Yeah. So BMW is like, you know, you can turn it on. Or even if I keep, I buy the BMW, but then I'm doing some work in Toronto in February and March, I can subscribe for two months and pay 20 bucks or 30 bucks. And I got a warm heat seats. Most of the time I don't need it. So in their mind, it was a really flexible way to access a feature that some people love and some people never use. Um, I think what I'm seeing with the car companies that are, that are having better luck with subscription, it's on features that didn't exist before options that didn't exist. So for example, um, I think it's Stellantis. They've been talking about a feature, um, that not only tells you if your car is stolen, not only tells you where the car is, uh, you know, like like we all have with our, our you know, our Apple, I forget what they call those little, little the Apple, tiles. The tiles. Yeah. yeah tile. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but, you know, then you're like, okay, so my luggage is in, you know, Colombia. Now what do I do with that? They actually, part of the services will retrieve it for you. 
right? We find it, we retrieve your car. If your car has been taken, you know, if it's been stolen, we find it, we deal with the logistics, we bring it back. Because as a big company that sells cars, they're uniquely suited to do that in a way that I, as an individual owning just one or two cars, could never be good at. Um, yeah. So the, the, the secret is if you're going to put something on a subscription that used to be something that you can own, um, there needs to be good logic there or you need to leave the choice still there so people still have choice. Um, but if it's something that's brand new that we've, we've never had before, people are much more receptive to a subscription. That's really interesting. What other mistakes uh, can you help our listeners avoid? So let's say through the course of this conversation, we've got somebody who thought, you know, subscriptions were just for software companies and media companies. And now they're like, you know what, well, maybe hearing Robbie, like maybe I could, maybe I could create something of ongoing value that people need. And they've kind of done their segmentation. So they think that there's this kind of like segment they can go after. What mistakes would you coach them to avoid Yeah, uh, that you see new people in this, in this kind of space make all the time? All the time. So the first thing is don't just slap a subscription price on your products exactly the way they are, right? A subscription is a, a pricing. It's a pricing decision. Um, membership really involves a mindset where you're treating the customer like a member and you're committing to a long-term ongoing relationship with them. Um, so that's the first thing. You have to know who you're having that relationship with, as we discussed. So, you know, it's not for everybody. You probably want to start with a small and important segment. Um, usually it's, you know, it's your best, best customers. It's your lightest or newest customers, or it's a really weird segment that behaves differently than everybody else. Um, but know who you're designing for. Um, I think that's a second, a second mistake. I think a lot of organizations, once they get their subscription model going, they over-index either on acquisition, so people sign up for it, but then don't use it and then cancel, or they over-index on retention, but don't bring in new customers. So you think about like the gym or the newspaper or the country club where they're like, everybody that's a member loves us, but nobody wants to join. And the reason is usually that they've stopped innovating. Um, they've stopped understanding what the market options are for a new customer. And so nobody, nobody who's considering options thinks they're op option is this option is very good. Um, but the people who are already members aren't looking for alternatives. And so it feels like they're loyal, but really it's just inertia. Hmm. Interesting. What other reasons do people stop subscribing or cancel their membership? Or you know, like yeah. what do you see as the as the yeah. reason people churn? So people often churn when a bad thing happens and it's not handled well. So uh, I worked with a, at a streaming company in Europe um, and they were really angry at their retention team, but it turned out that most of the people who had canceled, canceled the day of or the day after a major soccer tournament um, that was supposed to be streaming on their channel, um, they'd lost, they'd lost the connection for 10 minutes. So you can think of all of these, you know, people, these soccer fanatics, all, you know, having all their friends over and then, you know, the game, you know, doesn't come through, they all canceled. Um, so that's the first thing, like a technical issue, a glitch that isn't handled properly. Um, another reason is people don't use it. So a leading indicator of churn or retention is usage. So you have a product, nobody's using it. They're going to cancel eventually. Maybe not today, but they will. So you want to like if somebody that was using, you know, if somebody's coming to your gym three times a week and now they're not coming, they're probably going to cancel. So you need to figure out what's going on there. 
Um, Robbie, what yeah. about people who are are like sleeping at the wheel? So yeah. let's imagine you've got a a nine dollar a month subscription. Tucker Carlson's got his new. <laughs> I've read something about he's coming up with a new subscription. It's going to be nine dollars a month. Okay, fine. So you opt in. You're all hot and bothered about the fact that somebody's mm -hmm. got a new. It's nine dollars. It's not a significant charge, right? But it goes in your card, and the first few months you use it avidly, and then you stop using it. Now you, as the as the owner of that service, can see their usage drop. Yeah, right? it happens all the time. Yeah, and presumably the right thing to do is to is to get in there with your customer success people in the first couple of months and try to kind of stimulate usage and so forth. But let's imagine they have missed that window. And now that $9 a month charge is just kind of sitting there on that credit card. And they're worried that if they call that customer, they're going to wake the giant. And they're yep. going to say, oh my gosh, I, I, I'd forgotten that I'd subscribe. You know what? Thanks for calling. Cancel. Right. What do you coach people when they've got a sleeping giant? Just leave them, leave them be until they, no. until they realize. There's, so there's a couple of things. So, so first of all, I'm a very kind of karma oriented, positive person. So like, I, I can't imagine wanting to be running a business where the reason I make money is because people are getting no value and they keep meaning to cancel, but then they forget. Um, sure. I, I, I got, but if your if your kid's birthday party or your kid's like dinner getting on the table is, I know, is contingent here, okay. on you running a company like Okay, you can here, have all the good karma in the world. Here's the <laughs> you know here's the mean? cold hard the cold hard things. When people cancel, yeah. um, they'll often sue you. Um, there's you know the FTC, the you know the all the you know consumer reports and the the whatever the customer better business bureau. They're full of lawsuits for people hiding the cancel button, making it hard to cancel. Um, they will never come back. So a lot of subscription businesses actually do very good business when people leave and come back. It's a huge part, for example, of Netflix business, right? People leave because, oh, you know, I'm really busy or I'm binging on HBO or whatever. And then they come back um, and they don't refer you because they say, you know, I used that. I never really used it. And then it was hard to cancel and it's a waste of money. Um, so you don't have you don't engender goodwill. Um, the other thing that I mean, I, I don't want to under, you know, I don't want to scare anybody, but. The FTC right now has a massive lawsuit with uh, Amazon Prime for making it hard to cancel. And they also, you know, just announced uh, Adobe, who's always been, you know, considered a really good actor in this space, um, is being probed for um, penalizing people for canceling early. Um, so hmm. there's a lot of a lot of legal issues. But I, I have seen in the long term that hiding the cancel button, that's what we'll just call it, but letting sleeping dogs lie, hiding the cancel button works great. Um, for the next two, three, four months, it works for your kid's birthday this year. Next year, you run out of people and um, you don't, you know, you don't have any subscribers because the other thing that I think is, you know, to be noted is if you have a product that people aren't using and you're attracting people who use your product for a month and then stop using it, you don't have a real subscription business. Um, and so you, you want to take that as a clue to adjust the business and improve the offering. If, and not attract people who aren't going to stay. To go back to the issue at hand, though, if you've got somebody who's a sleeping dog on your subscription yeah. list, they haven't logged in in three years. Like, what would you what would you counsel that owner to do to re-engage them at the same time, okay. minimize their chance of churn? 
Okay, so the first thing is before you even reach out to them, you should have a pretty good idea of what happened. Um, did they truly forget that they even had the subscription? Um, would they be a good customer? Could you win them back? Um, did your product change a lot in the last three years and now it's way more relevant? Do you have something new to share? Um, a, a lot of times companies can, you know, you can look at your list of customers and you can guess why they're not there anymore. So the first thing is, you know, do you actually have a story? Do you think they're likely to stay? Sometimes people have a subscription um, for reasons other than usage. So for example, museums, right? I'm a member of a museum in Washington, DC. I live in California. Why? Because I believe in what they're doing, right? I believe what they're doing. And they could call me and say, you know, Mrs. Baxter, you're, you know, you've been subscribing for four years and you haven't been to the museum since, you know, 2017. Um, I, I'm, I'm not going to cancel, but they probably know that there are people like me. They're like, Oh, a person in California that has a membership. It's only come once, you know, uh, so I think it's important to understand it. I think a second thing is, you know, do you need to remedy it? Do you need to have a different offer? And, you know, then it's up to you. Like you can let, you know, you have no legal liability to tell them that they need to, you know, to remind them. But um, if they cancel, there is a risk that they're going to be really angry. And so, you know, you have to just know how your business responds to that and how big a risk it is. So I know, like, for example, a lot of newspapers they actually keep raising the prices on their most loyal customers because they say people, once you decide what newspaper you're reading, you're not going to cancel. So you and I could live next door to each other, be a very similar customer profile. You could be paying $5 for six months as an intro fee going up to $10 a month. And I could be paying $85 a month for the same subscription. And there I've talked to them and they're like, look, they made the same argument you did. They're like, look, we're making money from it. So that's, you know, that's the problem of that consumer that's not paying attention. Um, Isn't so, that interesting? Yeah. So get to know the reason they might be a sleeping yeah. dog before you call them. Understand yeah. their 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 usage pattern, ne and there may be underlying reasons that they are. Yeah. So Netflix. It's interesting. Netflix has now said if you haven't used your subscription in more than eleven months, they automatically cancel you. Wow. Really? They, they, and they said we don't. They said we don't want sleeping dog revenue. We want revenue from people who use our product. Um, they also introduced a lower priced subscription, which is interesting, which is their ad supported subscription, which is something when I was working with them 20 years ago, they said they would never do, but they've come around on advertising for, I think, good reasons. Um, but they, they, they have always been, you know, monthly only. They don't have an annual subscription that locks you in. And they always say, if you're not getting value, cancel. Every time they raise wow. the price, they send out a letter. It says, we're raising the price. We think we give you great content. If you don't like it, you can cancel. Here's the button. How often do you think people with a subscription model should be raising their price? Um, not very often. I think, um, I mean, I think there's actually, I, th I think there's two options. One of them is that you raise it consistently. So it becomes yet another habit. Oh, every year we raise it somewhere between three and 5% as a, you know, to keep up with inflation or whatever. Um, I think that works really well. Um, when you raise your price, what happens is your, you know, your subscribers, I always say subscriber is a person who was a consumer. They take off their consumer hat where they're looking at alternatives. They put on a member hat, they relax back and they stop looking for alternatives and they stop paying attention to the bill. And, you know, it's just part of how they live their life. It's almost a utility. When you raise the price, they put their consumer hat back on most of the time. And they're like, oh, wait, how much am I paying? How much are we using it? They'll often like ask all the family members, are we still getting value for this? 
And that's a chance to lose them. So you don't want to do that unless you're either highly confident that they're going to still see that there's a lot of value or you have a really good reason for, for raising the price. Um, but, but you do, you do, you always lose people when you raise price. A, a bunch of people wake up and say, Oh, I don't think that's worth it anymore. It's such a great analogy, this kind of wearing the membership hat versus wearing the consumer hat. Because, because when you are a member of something, you, you become sort of almost inoculated from competitive offers. You're like, no, no, exactly. I'm a member of, of this. And, and that makes you feel like you have a relationship and, and that puts a bubble of security around your relationship with that customer if they consider themselves a member as opposed to a consumer. I think that's such an important sort of idea for our listeners to take away. One of the things that I also find interesting is the difference between a B2B subscription model and a mm -hmm. B2C subscription model. And, and I think, you know, from what I've experienced, B2C and B2B are different from lots of different angles. One, of course, is the contractual obligation with a B2C subscription model like a Netflix. Kind of the, yeah. the I think the prevailing sort of model is cancel anytime, right? Yeah. And here's this, you know, cancel button and we make that, you know, obvious to, to you versus a B2B subscription model where both sides are contractually agreeing to a set of, uh, you know, obligations to one another. We're going to supply you the service for this length of time. And in return, you're going to pay us this much per month for a certain period of time. Um, how does your thinking about subscription models and membership models vary between a B2C model and a yeah. B2B model? Yeah. So there's, there's, there's a bunch of things. I mean, you brought up an important one, which is, you know, cancel anytime versus, you know, you have a two-year contract or a three-year contract. Um, another one is usually the consumer, you have one buyer um, and that buyer is usually the user um, unless it's like a parent uh, situation. Um, but in B2B, you might have, like, I always think you, you think about three different members. There's the company, there's the buyer, and then there's the people using the, the product or service. Um, that's, really what's been responsible for the rise, I think, of customer success as a discipline. Um, if you move your B2B offer, your high-priced offer into a subscription, um, and the, you, know, you wanna make sure that people are gonna use the product um, and not leave. Um, and, and we've all had experiences working places where you know, your boss buys something and you're supposed to use it and you just ignore them and don't use it and drag your feet. Um, if you own the software outright, it's your problem. But if you're subscribing, it becomes the problem of the uh, the vendor. Um, so I think that's something to think about is like if you're selling B2B, you want to think about, you know, how do I build ongoing loyalty with the company? But also, how do I build ongoing loyalty with the buyer, even if they leave the one company and go to another company, which happens all the time, right? How do I keep track of them? That's why these membership organizations become so valuable, like the the Salesforce admin group, right? Some, yeah. I would say that some Salesforce admins are more loyal to Salesforce than they are to their employer, right? First, I'm a Salesforce admin and second, I work for Robbie's company, right? Um, so you want to build loyalty with them and then with the users themselves, because if they stop using the product, there's a pretty good likelihood that the next year when they're looking at budgets and the contract comes up from renewal, they'll say, you know, no one uses this anyway. We tried, it didn't work. Uh, it's interesting. Going back to B2B versus B2C, what sort of churn rates would be uh, ones that you would consider a red flag? And, and how do they differ between a B2C model and a B2B model? Like how high would my churn rate have to be 
before you, for you to say, you know what, like you got to retool because that's too high. So the companies that I work with are always retooling. They are always trying to improve um, retention rates. Um, I would say actually that they kind of work through sort of the different issues. You know, I always encourage them, you know, manage retention, manage acquisition. And one of them is always out of whack. Um, that's mm-hmm. just, you know, because you, you know, you focus on why it's hard to focus on both at the same time. I think um, when you're trying to determine like, what is your benchmark for kind of optimal retention? A lot of it is it depends on whether you have a true forever promise. Um, so for example, I, one time I was giving a talk, kind of like the talk that you opened with, where there's just a lot of business owners in the audience. And one of them had a business around potty, potty training children. And was wondering why people were canceling their subscription after six months. And I'm like, well, you know, as a mom of three kids, if my kid's not potty trained after six months of strenuous effort, if they are, then I don't need it anymore. And if they aren't, you know, I'm going to I'm going to come back later because I got a bigger problem. And so the first thing is, is it really a forever promise? So funny story. I think it's funny anyway. um, uh, The founders of LinkedIn, I'm sure everybody listening is a member of LinkedIn. Before sure. they founded LinkedIn, they had a company called SocialNet, which was a dating site. They had the same vibe that they always, that they continue to have, which is very much about the long-term relationship with the customer and they're in it for the long game and all the stuff that makes LinkedIn a good and successful company. But it was a dating site. So they were putting all this effort into building a trusted relationship with each member. And within six months, right, they're either finding their true love or they're getting booted out for being an unsavory character, right? And so they were like, the next time we start a company, we need a longer forever promise, right? So now it's your career, which is like, you know, 50, 60, 70 years. And so, you know, if you're paying 40 bucks a month for the LinkedIn learning and all the extra stuff, you know, that is a great business. So I think if you're, if you're trying to figure out what retention should look like, you need to be really honest with yourself about how long a customer stays with you. And if they're leaving before that duration, um, and you can often tell this also by the reasons they leave there, there's acceptable churn and there's unacceptable churn. And, and this is from the perspective of the owner, right? If I run a gym and the gym is in Menlo Park where I live and somebody leaves and cancels their membership and I say, why did you cancel? And they said, I moved to Toronto. Like, that's a good point. You shouldn't be a member anymore. You know, good luck to you. If they leave because now they're going to Orange Theory, that's not really acceptable. If they leave because they've actually, you know, gotten more out of shape and gained weight and feel bad about themselves, that's unacceptable. So that's really the right, the right benchmark. Um, and I think, you know, if people are leaving for reasons that are, that are unacceptable, you, you need to, you need to fix those holes. I think having a, a fixed number, like people will say is 10% churn good. I'm like, I, I don't know. I mean, it depends on what your, what your offering is. Um, when, when Netflix first started, their churn was very, very low. Um, because there was no, nothing like it. So people came and stayed forever. Now it's much more of a commodity and you see all this serial monogamy where people, you know, I was with Netflix, I watched all their new content and now I'm going through Max's content. And then after that, I'm going to go back to, you know, I bought a new computer. So I got six months of Apple. So I'll cancel the other two and I'll come back at the end of the six months and I'll make a note in my calendar. Um, that's just a much harder environment, um, to thrive in. Yeah, no, for sure. And 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 again, I my experience would be that the forever promise in the business to consumer models would be generally much harder to create these like long-term. You used the example of potty training. I think yeah, I wrote about 
uh, one where it was somebody who uh, wrote about un unique things you can do it, traveling to Italy. <laughs> and, and again, like that's an amazing service that I'm sure people love. But once you've gone, like maybe you go back three years later, but it's not, not something you probably need, to your point, this forever right. promise right. Uh, uh, going forward. So I think that's a perfect place to end our conversation. Robbie Kelman Baxter, one of the world's leading experts on the membership economy. The books are called The Forever Transaction and the Membership Economy. Robbie's podcast is subscription stories. Robbie, thanks for doing this. And there you have it for today's conversation between Robbie and John. If you enjoyed today's podcast, then be sure to hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And if you want to help support Built to Sell Radio, I'd encourage you to share this episode out with a friend or colleague. For show notes, including links to everything referenced in today's episode, be sure to visit Robbie's episode page, which you can find over at Built to Sell. Com. Also a reminder to head over to our YouTube channel at Built to Sell Radio, where there you can watch the full video interview of today's podcast between John and Robbie. Special thanks to Dennis Labatagla for handling today's audio engineering. And thank you to our community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisors are experts in helping you build the value of your company. To get in touch with an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, head over to ValueBuilder.com. Com. I'm Colin Morgan. Have a wonderful holiday season, and we'll be back next week with another episode. Mm -hmm.